death of the Lord Jesus, the very heart of the Gospel, what it took to save us and give us life. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 56, the very heart of the heart of the Gospel, Jesus' death. Matthew 27 and verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamath sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When one of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of of Zebedee's sons. Well, let's pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would take up his sword that is the Word of God and make the familiar to many of us fresh. And perhaps for some of us, what is unfamiliar, striking us in a wonderfully, wonderfully profound way. So let's ask God to do just that. Lord, we pray that in these few minutes we gather now around your living word and then as we come to the Lord's table, to this bread and wine, we pray that you would take us to the very foot of the cross of Christ and help us to understand its sheer significance as the very heart of the gospel. Help us to take it in And if it is familiar ground, may its freshness steal upon us. And if it is new ground for some of us, may it strike us in a truly life-transforming way. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
Uh, three simple headings you'll see on the back of the service sheet. Firstly, verses 45 and 46, forsaken for us. Let's read them again. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Matthew, the writer, records for us is a sign, the darkness and a cry of forsakenness. First, the sign, darkness over all the land. From midday till three in the afternoon, darkness. At the very moment when the sun should have been at its brightest, there is darkness. No solar eclipse that lasts only a few minutes. A supernatural event. For three hours, there is darkness in the middle of the day. A sign from God. A sign of what? Jesus suffered like any man dying on a cross, the physical agony. But this darkness signifies a suffering of a whole different order. The darkness is a sign of God's judgment, God's anger, his wrath, directed from God the Father against God the Son. Everyone in that land of Judea for these three hours would have been aware of the darkness. Matthew tells us it was all over the land, people talking in the streets, in the fields, wondering if the world was coming to an end, which in a profound way it was, the fallen world. But the Lord Jesus experienced the darkness in a way that no one else did, for the anger of God, his Father, the wrath, the judgment of God in all of its intensity was focused upon him. That is the sign. And then the anguished cry from the Lord Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus' cry of forsakenness conveys what he was experiencing, the weight of sin and guilt and the penalty of God's judgment. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was experiencing the dreadful wrath of God's judgment on sin. Whose sin? My sin? My wife's sin? Your sin? All the millions of people through history who have trusted in him for their salvation, their sin. He took our sin, mine and yours, and bore the penalty for our sin, God's wrath, that I deserve, that you deserve, that he bore it all for us. He took the blame and bore the wrath that we might stand forgiven at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there is an awfulness 
to what happened here, the fury of God's wrath. But the paradox of the cross of Christ is that the awfulness is matched at the same time by an astonishing display of God's love. Because God poured out his wrath on his Son for us. And Jesus bore willingly the wrath of his Father for us. Don Carson puts it like this. He writes, God's matchless love is displayed in the sacrifice of the cross, in the penal substitutionary death of the eternal incarnate Son of God, Emmanuel. God with us. Now, how does that leave you feeling or thinking? What is the moment in your life when you have felt most loved? The sense, I mean, is of someone doing something for you because they loved you. Do we truly understand what happened at the cross? The awfulness and the outrageous display of love. Verses 50 to 53, the title I've given to these verses, Forgiveness and Life. Let's read them again. Verse 50, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then the most astonishing verses, in many ways, in these passion accounts, the earth shook. And one can imagine it was the whole land that shook. And the rocks split and the tombs broke and the bodies of dead people walked out of the tombs. What a contrast from these earlier verses. What a contrast between the darkness and the temple curtain being ripped in two. What a contrast between the awfulness of a dying man bearing the wrath of God for all believers and these tombs breaking open and dead people walking out. Matthew intends that we see that contrast. And once again, we have a cry from Jesus and a sign. First a cry, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. John's Gospel records for us what that cry is. His final words, it is finished. Not a cry of forsakenness now, but a cry of victory. As the Lord Jesus died and gave up his spirit to his Father, it is finished. Now what was finished? What was accomplished? Well, the penalty for our sin. And let me use the language very precisely here. The penalty for our sin had past tense, at that moment, been paid. At that moment, and it is a precise moment, the wrath of God against sinful men and women was extinguished for all who believe in Jesus. Full forgiveness, the price paid. 
if you take a fire extinguisher to deal with a fire, there is a moment, and it is a precise moment when the fire goes out. If you are a Christian sitting here tonight, if you have believed in Jesus, trusting him for your salvation, there was a precise moment when the wrath of God was extinguished like a flame, spent. And this was the moment when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Where is the wrath of God for you if you're a Christian here? It, it does not exist anywhere in the universe or the cosmos. It is gone even from the vestiges of the omniscient mind of God. It does not exist even in his mind. If you're not a Christian, the wrath of God is still against you. And one day will be poured out on you for eternity. That is the warning of the cross. But the Lord Jesus' hands at the cross are never held out in rejection. The outstretched arms of the Lord Jesus on the cross are held out in invitation. Jesus cries out to you and all people from the cross, let me bear God's wrath in your place. All it takes from you is the humility to recognize your need of forgiveness and the faith to lay hold of him for it. The cry of victory and then the sign, or more precisely signs, for there are two of them. First, the tearing of the temple curtain, verse 51. At that exact moment, it's at that moment it all happened. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 22 meters high. We have a three and a half meter high curtain in our house. I was imagining today, as I was sitting writing this talk of that curtain being ripped in two. The curtain symbolically represented the separation of God from his people, like a big no entry sign, signaling loud and clear the impossibility for sinful people like us to be in the presence of God. And up to this moment, once a year, one man, the high priest, could go behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence. One man, once a year. But when Jesus died at that moment, the way into the presence of God was opened to everyone and anyone who will believe. Why? Because the shed blood of Jesus was the perfect and final payment for sin. Free 
unfettered access into the very presence of God. Now what does that mean practically for us as Christians? It means we can know God personally. Anyone can know him personally. It means we can talk to God at any time. God is approachable. It means we are constantly in his presence because the Holy Spirit lives in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Religion and ritual and buildings and institutions have no part in free access to God. We are invited by the Lord Jesus to walk through that curtain into a relationship with the Lord Jesus to love him, to obey him, to serve him. If you are not a Christian, I wonder if you might be beginning to see that becoming and being a Christian is not about religion or ritual or the church or ministers. It's about you and the Lord Jesus. From that moment when the temple curtain was ripped in two, anyone you can know God personally, full forgiveness. The second sign this powerful sign, the earth shook and the rocks split, the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It's very striking that, isn't it? It's the, the forgotten bit of the Easter story. It's very powerful. It seems from Matthew's account that these events the rocks splitting, the tombs bursting open and the resurrection of the dead happened not after Jesus' resurrection but at the moment he died. That's what it says. And yet they point us forward to the resurrection and its significance. It's almost as if, it's almost as if God cannot contain himself to show us the impact of the resurrection that is inexorably set in motion when Jesus died and gave up his spirit. Jesus died. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus was the certain consequence. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs burst open and the people were raised to life. What we get here, I think, is the birth pangs of the new creation. Right at the point when Jesus died, when the people in that land with the darkness would have thought the world had come to an end, they were right. Right at that moment, we get the birth pangs of a new creation. Even before the resurrection, Because what will happen in the new creation is one, the world that we live in will be resurrected. The earth we stand on, the earth will shake and the rocks will split and there will be a new creation free of the effects of this fallen world. Literally, the resurrection of the earth. 
What else will happen when the Lord Jesus returns? What will happen in the Grange Cemetery? What will happen? The tombs will burst open and men and women will be raised to life. The resurrection of the body. What if you die before the Lord Jesus returns? What will happen to you? Exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His soul went to heaven. His body went into the tomb. What will happen if you die before the Lord Jesus returns? Your spirit, your soul will be with God. And one day, the graveyard or the crematorium, which is well within God's omnipotence, will give up your ashes, will give up your dead bones, and your body, like the Lord Jesus' body, will be resurrected to join your soul in a resurrected earth. And the second that Jesus died, God could not hold back with the birth pangs of the new creation. An astonishing You clear on what being a Christian means, fully forgiven, free unfettered access to God. We just need to walk down the street and say, Father. That's all we need to do. A living, loving relationship with God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. The fact that you have everlasting life, you will die a physical death, but your soul will live and never die. All because the Lord Jesus went to his cross. Now as we close and come to the Lord's table, let's consider thirdly and briefly the response of those who watched Jesus die. And the question Matthew's text asks of us, what is our response to Jesus' death? Matthew describes the response of those around the cross in verses 47 and 49, and then 54 to 56. First, 47 to 49, when some of those standing heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Almost certainly, these are the Jewish religious leaders. They had led the clamour for Jesus to be crucified and now they mock him as he hangs dying on the cross. It is mockery, this. They are not giving him something to quench his thirst. They are giving him, they are giving a man parched with thirst something he could not drink. Wine vinegar. Gall in wine makes it undrinkable. 
And what a contrast with the Roman centurion and his execution squad. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. And that's striking. The soldiers made a confession of faith while the heirs of God's covenant mock their Messiah. The Roman centurion stands before us as a picture of saving faith. He had overseen hundreds of crucifixions, but never one like this. He'd never seen darkness like this or the ground shaking under his feet. And what he did is he made that vital connection between that man hanging on the cross and he said, that is God. And when you get that, that that man on the cross is God, you get the gospel. He's your model believer. And then Matthew finishes his account with the women who were there watching from a distance. Verse 55, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Their loyal followers of Jesus followed him to care for his needs. And now they can only look on as he dies for their greatest needs. Isn't it striking that Matthew ends his account very personally? He doesn't end his account saying many women were there watching from a distance. He says this, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John's mum. That's what he's saying. And all of a sudden, it steals upon us again that the gospel is very personal. It's about what James and John's mum thinks about the Lord Jesus. It's what you, your parents, your children, your friends, think of the Lord Jesus. One on one. So where would you put yourself in Matthew's list? You sceptical maybe? Well, if you're sceptical, let the evidence question your scepticism. Maybe you're at a distance. Lots and lots of people are at a distance, a disengaged distance. Well, if you are, come close to the cross and face Jesus. Stand at the foot of his cross and face him. And make your choice there, not at a distance. Or are you like the centurion, once against him, but now for him? How much more against him could you be than executing him? And in the astonishing grace of God, as Jesus died, that man was converted. Or are you with James and John's mum? You understand that Jesus had to die to meet your greatest need. And with all your heart you want to serve him and obey him and love him because of the way he has loved you. But all these people in the end fall into two groups. Those who have trusted in Jesus as their saviour, fully forgiven, who know God and have everlasting life, those who do not trust in Jesus as their saviour, who are not forgiven, 
who do not know God and who face the everlasting judgment of God. Jesus hangs on his cross with outstretched arms to the world inviting you to make him your saviour. And if you have, inviting you to love him, to serve him, to be loyal to him and to proclaim his death with your last breath which will be the day when you give up your spirit to God which heralds the day when your grave will give up your body to join your spirit in a new creation for eternity all because of Good Friday. Our loving Father, we pray that in your sovereign mercy and grace each one of us in this room tonight would be found believing in Jesus not sceptical not standing at a distance but standing close like the Roman centurion or standing like these women the two Marys and James and John's mum is loyal loving serving faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Our Father, we pray that every one of us in this room tonight would leave eternally safe. Safe because we have trusted in Jesus and received his forgiveness. Safe in the knowledge that were our lives taken from us this very night, our souls would immediately be in your presence. And our bodies one day raised to everlasting life in a resurrected earth free from all all the stuff that makes this world and our lives fallen. Our Father, we pray that you would seal these wonderful truths to our minds and hearts now as we come to the Lord's table. May this be a clarification perhaps for some. For those who have gathered around the Lord's table for many years, we pray it would liberate us to love and to serve and to proclaim 
his gospel until we give up our spirits into the hands of our Father. All these things we ask in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.